So one of the most common questions that I receive when I'm counseling someone as a pastor is this. Um, so what is God's plan for my life? What does God want me to do? Uh, what am I supposed to do right now? And that's, that's a big question that I always get. Um, many of us have asked this question before. I personally have asked this question before as well. And, uh, but will you, if you read the Bible from start to finish, when you study God's word, you're going to notice from the beginning of the Old Testament all the way to the end of the New Testament, God's plan, it's always the same and it's always very simple. And here it is. Here's God's plan for your life, for my life, and for the life of the church. By his grace, he saves people and he makes them his possession. He, he pours out his blessings upon these people. He guides them with his word. He gives them his presence so that they would be holy, so that they would be set apart, different, unique compared to everyone else in this world. And through them and through their distinct lifestyle, he says, people will know who I am. This has been the plan from the very beginning. If you think about what God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Why? Because you are created in my image. Through you, I'm going to display my glory. Same with Abraham, right? I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing to others. With Moses... Um, when, when they came out of the promised land, Leviticus 11.45, God says this, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. So I saved you. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Deuteronomy 7.6 says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possessions out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So again, the word holy appears. And if you just think this is the Old Testament concept, if you go to the New Testament, 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The word holy appears on and on again, connected to the idea of salvation. God has this, this desire to set us apart, to make us holy. And this tells us that more than your degree or GPA, more than your career or salary, more than who you marry and more than how you raise kids, God cares about your holiness. He cares about your moral purity. He cares about you. Holiness is a big deal to God. You know, God wants his church to be set apart for his purposes. He wants his church to be noticeably different on this earth. It, it shouldn't be a sign or a website that leads people to the church. It should be us. God says, it is through your works, it is through you being, being my image, it is through you displaying my love in a different way. When people see that, they will see me. That's how they're going to know me. And the problem with this church, Thyatira, is that they did many good things, but they forgot about the one thing that God really wanted them to treasure, which was their holiness. So look at verse 19, it says this. 
Jesus speaks to the church of Thyatira, says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So unlike the church of Ephesus, which was kind of like the mega church, the most well-known church out of the seven, the Bible says that um, this church, Thyatira, they're going strong in their love. The church of Ephesus, Jesus said, well, you've forgotten your first love. The church of Thyatira, uh, they're a small church in a small city, yet they are growing in their love. They are going strong in their love. They are filled with faith. They are serving. They are enduring, similar to the previous churches like Smyrna. And, and not only that, not only are they doing all these good things, but what's surprising is the fact that they are making progression. They are growing in all of these different areas. Jesus says, your latter works exceed the first. So their love for the Lord is, is far greater than last year. They're, they're serving for the Lord this year is far greater than last year. They are growing in their faith. In every area of, of, of their walk with the Lord, they are growing except for one place, their holiness. In the midst of all these good things, this remarkable church, they lost sight of the one thing that God really desired them to, to treasure in, in their walk with the Lord, which is holiness. They have been tolerating sin. They didn't make a big deal out of sin, so when they saw sin within the church, they didn't address it. And we'll look at that in a second. But here's the lesson that I think God wants us to learn today. Uh, it's pretty simple. The sin that we do not deal with will, at the end, undermine all the good that we do. The sin that we do not deal with right now will undermine all the good that we do. That's exactly what Jesus is saying to this church of Thyatira. They have all these good works, yet... He, it's the longest letter, and the majority of the letter is rebuke after rebuke, warning after warning, judgment after judgment. Why? Because God knows that if you lose your holiness, everything else doesn't really matter. Imagine my wife is introducing uh, me as her husband to, to you guys. Maybe you met her for the first time, and she says, well, um, my husband, good looking. My husband, very skilled, uh, intelligent, cooks well. He just has one problem. Every now and then, he would just go out and sleep with other ladies. Well, this is not true. I'm just, I'm just a, imagine, I, told, I said imagine, right? Well, all the good things, that, the good qualities that I have, I mean, it doesn't matter. Uh, that one sin for me being unfaithful, me being unholy as a husband, that just undermines everything. Like, you, 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 you don't have to be the best cook to, be, to make the marriage work. You don't have to earn the most money to make a marriage work. But there's one thing that you cannot compromise, and that is your faithfulness to your spouse. And that's exactly what Jesus is pointing out here. You're doing a lot of good things, but don't you understand, if you lose on this one thing, if you miss out on this one thing, that it just undermines everything. This is true for the church. This is true for our personal lives. Um, our families, one sin, one hidden sin, one undealt sin can later come and really destroy everything that we have built before the Lord. And that's why God is saying, although you're doing a lot of these good things, be aware. Don't compromise. Don't tolerate sin, but wake up. 
Look at how Jesus is being introduced in today's letter. We know that uh, for each letter, each church, Jesus introduces himself in a different way, and this is how he introduces himself to the church of Thyatira. It says in verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So three things. Jesus, he is the son of God, meaning he has divine authority. He has rule over all things. But the second thing is, notice his eyes. It says that his eyes are like a flame of fire. It is burning, meaning it can penetrate through anything. It could, it could go through things. He sees all things. He has this vision that is penetrating. Like, it's like x-ray vision. And so you can hide things from other people, you can, you can try to cover up things um, so that no, others might not notice. But when it comes to Jesus, what the Bible is saying is he sees all things. That includes your actions, your intentions, your motivations, your desires, your thoughts, everything. He says, I see it. But also notice his feet. It's, it's burnished bronze. And we know that This metal is not just polished, but in chapter 115, it talks about how it's burnished bronze because it's refined in a furnace. So it's like that metal that you just just took out from a furnace. It's still glowing red. It's, It's hot, and it's pure as well. So literally, when Jesus is introducing himself, he's saying, from head to toe, I'm on fire. I'm burning. And, and if you look at the Old Testament, when it talks about fire, it has two connections. First, it's connected to the idea of, of God's holiness, his, his purity, because in fire, everything burns, right? And so you have this idea that God is pure and holy. In fire, everything, all the impurities, they melt away. But the second thing is this. It also speaks of God's judgment because fire can hurt other people fire can 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 devour other things so when jesus says well from head to toe i am burning like fire he's reminding us that he is absolutely holy at the same time he's also reminding us that he is without sin therefore he has to punish sin that it's not a question that he cannot tolerate sin because he is holy and this is something that we don't talk about um that often in the church. Uh, we, we love to say that God loves us, that he cares for us, he understands us, he forgives us. But one thing that we don't think about as often that we should is, is this idea of holiness. God, when he says he is holy, that means that he cannot tolerate sin. He cannot allow sin into his presence. The very reason Jesus died on the cross is so that God could punish sin, so that God could judge sinners. So, It would be a contradiction if we said, well, sin is not a big deal to God. God, he judges sin. And today we see that Jesus being on fire, being uh, the one who, 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 who sees things, all things, with this, this vision of flame, the one who, who stomps on things with this, this burning bronze uh, feet, we see that he is the purifying judge. He's the ultimate judge who purifies and this idea this picture of jesus it makes us very uncomfortable some of us might say well we get this pastor james but i still know that the blood of jesus conquers everything right um especially those who are in christ didn't didn't paul say that there's no condemnation 
that there's no penalty, that uh, once you are saved, you're always saved. I mean, how can we face God's judgment if Jesus took on the judgment of God uh, on the cross, right? How does that make sense? Um, and partially that's true, that the judgment that we face as believers, if you are in Christ, that judgment is different from the judgment that non-believers face. Um, the judgment that non-believers face when they stand in the presence of God and his holy wrath, uh, it brings condemnation. It brings destruction. But for believers, God still, he judges his people. He pours out judgment upon those that he loves, not to devour them, not to destroy them, but to discipline them. But to, you know, bring them to, to greater holiness and greater purity. It is true that if you are a believer, that you are not condemned in Christ. However, that does not mean there's no consequences when you sin. Jesus, he holds us accountable for our sins. If he didn't think sin was a big deal, he wouldn't write a letter to the church of Tyra in such a way. The Bible is very clear that Jesus disciplines those that he loves, that he purifies the church and the believers within the church. And in today's passage, we see that he does this in two ways. He refines his church. He refines people in two ways. First, Jesus refines us through the church, his body. Jesus refines us through the church. Look at verse 20. It says this, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexu sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So notice that there is this woman, her name is Jezebel. Now, most likely, that's not her real name. Because uh, in the first century, to name a woman uh, Jezebel would be the same thing as in the 21st century naming a, a guy Hitler. Right? You just don't do that. Because everyone knew who Jezebel was. In the Old Testament, Jezebel was a Sidonian princess. Her dad, his name was um, Ethbael, which means Baal is alive. Right? Their whole country worshipped Baal. And she married King Ahab, the king of the northern kingdom. And um, in their marriage, what, uh, what, what Jezebel did is she brought in uh, Baal worship, uh, worshiping Asherahs, uh, all this foreign culture. And by doing so, not only did she corrupt the household of, of Ahab, but she corrupted the entire nation of Israel. If you look at 2 Kings 9.34, Jezebel is called the cursed woman. She, she is so wicked that when she dies, because she is judged for her wickedness, what happens is she is thrown out of a window, she's stomped under horses, and she's eaten by dogs. That's the ending of her story. It's, it's a sad, sad scene. She was a terrible lady who led the people of Israel down a terrible path. And what Jesus is saying is there is someone among you who's acting like Jezebel. This person has some sort of authority. We don't know if it's public or private, but she is a self-proclaimed prophetess, meaning that she's self-proclaiming that she knows God's word very well. She is influencing others with all these pagan practices, but at the end of the day, she's leading people to sexual immorality and adultery and, and, and idolatry as well. 
and people are being influenced. But notice that in that verse, in verse 20, Jesus, he's not condemning Jezebel, this, this person. But instead, he is condemning the church. He's saying in verse 20, well, Jezebel, she was having her way. She was influencing people and leading people to astray. And you, the church, you did nothing about it. He is rebuking the church, not because they walked in the same way as this Jezebel figure, but because they were tolerating the immorality and the idolatry that they were seeing. They didn't say anything. They didn't do anything. They didn't hold this woman or the people who were following this woman accountable. It was nothing. Everyone was like, yeah, no, it's good. No, I mean, we all sin. We're sinners, right, in this place. I mean, church is a bunch, we're filled with a bunch of sinners, right? We can't condemn one another. We shouldn't judge one another. We shouldn't call one another out. And yet, Jesus is saying, that's your problem. That you don't care about one another's holiness, that you don't care about one another's purity, and that you're just letting one another live a life that's dishonoring to the Lord. And here we see that Jesus, he's not just condemning the leaders of the church. He's condemning the entire church. Sometimes we have this idea when it comes to church discipline or when it comes to calling out people, that's the job of the pastor, right? He has authority. He has a prominent position. So, you know, when he speaks, everyone else, everyone's going to listen. Number one, no, that's not true. Not everyone listens to a pastor. <laughs> Number two, sometimes you have more connection and you have more uh, a, a better platform to speak what is true to a brother and sister in Christ. This, this accountability, this idea of church discipline, it's not just restricted to the leaders of the church. If you go to Matthew 18, Jesus gives a very clear picture of what it should look like when it comes to church discipline. He says, if a brother sins against you or wrongs you, first confront that person. If they don't listen, bring another person. Again, if that person doesn't listen, well, bring that person to the leaders of the church. And still, if that doesn't, person doesn't listen, then bring that person to the entire congregation. And even if that person, if, even after that, if that person doesn't listen, well, just treat that person as a non-believer. That's kind of Jesus' process of, of church discipline. And so leaders, obviously, we have a prominent role when it comes to keeping the congregation accountable, but this is a job that every single one of us, we have to take up on. If we care about one another's purity, if we care about one another's holiness before the Lord, then we should be brave enough, bold enough to speak the truth to one another. Now, some might say, well, doesn't that lead to legalism? Uh, what if we're just being judgmental? Well, there's a difference be between being judgmental and, 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 and practicing accountability for, for the purity of one another. When you are judgmental, you don't care about that other person's purity. What you're really bothered by is, is that person's sin, right? Your, your, your intention is not really, I want to restore that brother. I want to make sure that brother walks in the way of the Lord. You just want to call that person out because you're mad, because you're, you're, you're be bothered by what that person is doing. When it comes to godly accountability and, 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 and church discipline, we speak truth to one another, but in love in humility, with, with, with a genuine, authentic heart. And we do so because our deep desire is that we want to see one another walk in holiness. So the next time 
someone calls you out for your sin, instead of rejecting that person's advice, instead of rejecting that person's word, could it be that God is giving you a message so that you would listen and actually repent? Could it be that the reason why you're seeing someone's faults and you really want that person to walk faithfully with the Lord, could it be that God is calling you to actually practice church accountability with that brother or sister in Christ? The way that we pursue holiness is through church accountability. You know, it's not that, you know, God's word convicts our sins, obviously, but Jesus says one of the primary ways that I'm going to purify my church is through the members of the church, keeping one another accountable in holiness, praying for one another, guiding one another. So in your small groups, in your friend groups, what we ought to do is not just call one another out, but we call one another out because we care about each other so deeply and we care about the purity and the holiness of one another. It is so important that we embrace this God-given responsibility as a church. Number two, God refines us through circumstances. For, so first through the church, second through circumstances. Notice what happens to this woman, Jezebel, in verse 21. says this, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. So hopefully you see the irony here. Jezebel, he, she is inviting people to sin in her bed, right? She's inviting people to sexual immorality, and God reverses that. He says, well, that bed that you're using for sin, I'm going to make you sick through that. She, he makes her bed sick. And the Bible is very clear when it comes to sickness. It says that not every sickness is, an, is, is a result of, of God's judgment. No, every physical sickness is not necessarily a result of a personal sin. We see this in the book of Job. We see this in John 9 when uh, there's a man who was blind from birth and the disciples ask, well, is it because the, this man's parents or is it because of him, his sin, that this man is blind? And Jesus says, neither. Well, it's for the glory of God. But we also see that physical sickness can be a sign of God's judgment. It can be one way that God is trying to wake you up. In 1 Corinthians 11, James 5, we see that God does use different circumstances and situations to get our attention so that we will be aware that we are walking down a dangerous road. And so if you are hiding sin, if you are trying to cover up your sin and just live a life of, of, of love and grace on the outside, but yet corrupted inside, notice that even if the church fails, the Lord will not fail. That he will discipline, that he will bring out what is evil in you. Not because he wants to destroy you, but he cares for you and because he loves you. One way that you know that a father loves a child is, is if a father properly disciplines his child, right? Um, sometimes Timothy would play on the play playground and, um, and he's still learning how to socially interact with others. And so sometimes he, he, he gets very aggressive or he steals something, something that belongs to another child and the child would cry. And, and other childs would do similar things to Timothy too. Um, but as a father, 
I rarely, almost never go up to a child that's not my own child and say, you shouldn't do that. Right? I, I, I rarely discipline someone else's child. Why? Because I don't love that child in the same way that I love Timothy. I don't have the same connection that I have with Timothy. The fact that God is willing to bring something in your life to awaken you, to expose your sin, is a sign of God's love. One of the cruelest things that, that a father can do to a son is just abandon a son, not say anything about a son. Just leave the son to live a life of sin and, 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 and walk down the pathway of destruction. God, he cares so much about you in love. He's willing to discipline you, to purify you, to refine you in the midst of fire. John Owens, a Puritan writer, says this, be killing sin or it will be killing you. The reason why God is willing to judge sin and expose sin in your life because he knows if he doesn't kill sin and if he don't kill sin, sin will eventually kill you. But here's the amazing part. Jesus is the judge who purifies there's two ways he purifies. One is through the church, other through circumstances. Um, but there's always grace available for those who are willing to repent. There's always grace available for those who are willing to repent. Now just think about this. This, this woman, Jezebel, like she has this name and it, it communicates to you that she is a bad lady. Like Jezebel in the Old Testament is the worst of the worst. She is worse than Hitler. And yet, Jesus, for some reason, gives her time to repent. To the worst sinner, Jesus gives time to repent. He, he pleads with her, gives her warnings through different people. And, and, and in every opportunity, he, he is trying to clean her, give her grace, forgive her so that she can have a new beginning, a new start. There's just so much grace in this passage. If we just think that this is a threat, then you're missing the point. The reason why Jesus is even bringing this up, the reason why Jesus is even pointing this out is because he's letting these people know that there is still time for repentance. Even to those who follow Jezebel later on, uh, even when Jezebel is going to fall into a sickbed, Jesus says, well, no, the same thing is going to happen to you. You're going to face God's judgment unless you repent. What does that mean? He is willing to forgive his people as long as they're willing to repent and turn away from their wicked ways. Time does run out. It's not like you have an unlimited amount of time to repent. But notice that even today, God is offering you grace that he's waiting and waiting. The reason why he's not dealing with your sin the way that he should properly deal with is not because he's, he's incapable of doing so. It's not because he doesn't see everything. It's not because he doesn't understand everything. It's not because he doesn't have the authority to do so. The reason why he's waiting and waiting and waiting is because he's giving you a chance to repent because he knows that unless you turn away from your wicked ways, then you'll never be able to be the person that he called you to be. Holiness is what sets us apart from this world. Look at verse 24. It says this, But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, but only hold fast 
for what you have until I come. And then he goes into this amazing passage that talks about how people one day will conquer with him. Those who are in Christ will rule with Christ. It's like this passage was written in light of Psalm 2, where it talks about this Messiah figure who's coming, and people are, in, in a way, joking around. They're mocking God, saying, where is your Messiah? Where is your king? And Jesus shows up in Psalm 2, and he rules the nations with, with a rod of iron. He, he rules the nations in a, such a powerful way. And what Jesus is saying is, those who remain faithful will rule with me, that you're going to be with me. And so notice that if you understand God's grace, then sin cannot be a thing that you tolerate. You can't have a casual attitude toward sin. God is gracious, but his grace is only offered to you as long as you are willing to come back to him in repentance. He cares deeply about your purity. And as a church, we have to recognize that our holiness is the number one thing that God desires for us, that he doesn't care about our size, how nice our building is, how many missionaries that we sent out, how often we meet, what he really cares about is that we are set apart to do the work of God. My prayer is that our church will be known as a church that is different, wholly devoted to the Lord. Amen? Let's pray.